Not for lack of things to do is Congress on a two-week recess, but the first three months of the 118th Congress have produced some results of note. We'll get a quick review and a look at what's ahead from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, members might have been disappointed that they're not in session for the indictment of former President Donald Trump, because not that it's exactly a Congress's affair here, but it's the kind of thing both sides would have liked to weigh in on heavily, and some of them have. But anything Congress can actually do at this point? That remains to be seen. They had already left town last Thursday for this recess when the indictment news was breaking on Thursday night. But what we saw in the aftermath is from the top of the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying that Congress would potentially investigate the indictment of the ex-president and Democrats saying that they'd probably keep their hands off of it. So I think there will be further discussion on the Hill even before they come back. Chairman certainly can weigh in from wherever they might be for the next couple of weeks. But I would especially think we'll hear from Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and James Comer, the chair of the Oversight Committee, because they've already been looking into this even when they were down in Orlando a couple of weeks ago when Trump had tweeted he might be arrested or indicted. They were already talking about what their potential role might be in investigating it. So they might not be able to stop it, but they can certainly ask questions and try and get Alvin Bragg, the DA from Manhattan, to to come down there and answer questions or answer questions by letter. So I think there's there will be a lot of discussion about this. I'm not sure what the action would be, though. And getting back to what they have done in the first three months as Congress, It's hard to point to anything as momentous as what happened in the end of the 117th Congress in terms of some big, huge bills worth trillions. But what would you say the 118th can look back at at least after three months and say, yeah, we did that? It's always going to be difficult when you have divided control. You have a Republican House, Democratic Senate. They're not going to see eye to eye on a lot. Both of those chambers have very narrow majorities, too, so that makes things difficult. But from the House perspective, they would certainly triumph their ability to pass an energy package last week that combines a lot of provisions that Republicans really want to combat the Biden administration, repeal some of the climate change provisions. They've also passed a what they call the Parents' Bill of Rights that they say would give parents more right in education. Those are two big things. I think they are happy to head into this recess talk about. Uh, On the Senate side, they passed a bill to repeal the Iraq war authorizations from three decades and two decades ago, trying to get those off the books. And and they did that in a bipartisan fashion, which was pretty notable. In terms of what's actually made it into the statute books, what's become law, there aren't a lot of examples there. And frankly, they're things that Joe Biden may not have necessarily agreed with at first. One is to cancel D.C.'s crime law that they had passed to change some of the criminal code provisions. Another is to declassify COVID intelligence which President Biden signed that as well. And um, he's on the verge of, when it gets to him, signing a piece of legislation that would end the COVID national emergency. So those might not have started off being things Biden wanted to do, but they're, they're things that'll be on the law books and are an example of what Congress got through. That Iraq authorization, that's almost like this generation's Gulf of Tonkin resolution. I guess in some sense. I mean, it's a thing that has kept the war going and has provided authority. Tim Kaine, who had really been pushing for that for a long time, and Todd Young, um, an Indiana Republican senator, together they have worked to try and get this done. Um, It doesn't affect the 2001 authorization, which was the one passed right after 9-11. So there still is authority in place, even if this gets through. We'll be watching to see when the House comes back after this two-week recess what the Foreign Affairs Committee and others do on this, because I think there's openness to passing this legislation, but maybe a different approach will be taken. But that that's a long time ago seeming debate that was you know, re-upped in recent weeks as we talked about Iraq again for, for the first time in a while in some cases. And you've got three senators that will be coming back after this cherry blossom era re- uh, recess. 
and together they have a combined age of about 225. And so some real experience and some not so much experience coming back. That's right. I mean, this has been one of the challenges for Senate Democrats is they've been without two of their members for quite a while. John Fetterman, who's receiving inpatient care for depression, and then Diane Feinstein, who had shingles back in California, has been then first in the hospital and then home. On the Republican side, it's been Mitch McConnell, the minority leader who has been unable to get to Capitol Hill because he fell and had a concussion and maybe a broken rib and had to deal with the convalescence from that. But it sounds like all three of them are in a good position to return, get the Senate back to 100 members, which makes the math closer to what they would like to see it. And one of the impacts of that Dianne Feinstein's absence has been the Judiciary Committee unable to approve more judicial nominees and get them to the floor, which, of course, is one of the top priorities for the Biden administration and Senate Democrats to get more judges through and confirmed. So it has affected the Senate's ability to do a few things, but they have been passing some legislation, even like the Iraq War Resolution or Congressional Review Act resolutions to cancel rules. So they have been busy in doing things, but some of the priorities they'd like to get through have had to been on the back burner for the last couple of weeks. We are speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And when they do get back, as you mentioned, some judge nominations, they'll get back to, what do they call it, the conveyor belt. <laughs> the other party is what calls what the other party is doing, you know, getting these judges through that way. And what about the Labor Department nominee, Julie Sue? She's due to get a hearing, nominated to replace Marty Walsh, who was Biden's first labor secretary and left to join the Hockey Players Union. Um, so we'll see how her hearing goes and, and how people line up for her. I'm sure she'll get tough questions because the Labor Department um, has it's reached in a number of places in the in the working world. So um, I'm, I'm sure that will be a top priority, though, to try and get somebody through and confirm to that department. Another nomination that has to be renominated now is for the Federal Aviation Administration after Phil Washington withdrew his nomination. They'll be looking to name somebody from the administration and then get through them through Congress as well, given all the attention that's on the FAA in recent months and the need to reauthorize the agency later this year. So that'll be another top priority. And judges judges, judges is always something that Democrats are going to try and pursue. And a final question on Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has got a issue with some of the military high-level nominees. Yes, that's true. He's putting a hold on some flag officer nominations that he doesn't want to go through in protest of the Pentagon's policy on abortion travel for, for service members. So he's using his prerogative as a senator to hold these up. He's made the point that Democrats could push these through if they wanted to, but it's a, a question of using floor time efficiently because you could set up cloture votes and then have confirmation votes on each of these nominees, but that can take days and really drag out the debate. So they're kind of in a little bit of a standoff here. We'll see what happens when they come back after this two-week recess, but I don't think he's necessarily going to budge right away because he does have a policy he'd like to see change, and he's using the leverage he has as a senator. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, 
associate provost at Auburn University and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. 
I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.